Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Adam Davis. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at lending and how the product that has traditionally underpinned banking as we know it evolves at a rapid pace. But before we start, we just want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Season two of the Fintech Marketing Podcast has landed. Join me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing and Commercial Officer here at 11FS, as I talk directly to some of the most influential CMOs in the world of fintech and financial services. I'm going to be asking them how they build brands, how they drive growth with modern-day marketing. This season, I also have a new co-host, Mariette Ferreira, our marketing director here at 11FS. She will be talking to the people getting down and dirty on the marketing front lines with roundtable chats from some of the best in the business. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out. That's Fintech Marketing Podcast by 11FS. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Let's get started. Uh, Lending has traditionally been the fastest and arguably most lucrative route for banks to make money. And we want to look at why so many new fintechs are turning to lending as the next product in their arsenal and how competition is hotting up in this space. We also want to take a look at the new lending models and companies coming onto the scene and how they're finding new and innovative ways to better serve the end customer or business versus the traditional banks. Uh, To dig into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, Making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Valentina Christiansen. I almost introduced you as Val, uh, Directing of Marketing and Comms at Oak North. Welcome back. Uh, well, I will call you Val. Welcome back, Val. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Cool. Uh, I mean, a lot of people who are listening to this will know what Oak North does and, and who they are. But in a nutshell, if you could just give us a, a very quick overview, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess there's two parts to Oak North's business. Um, one is the sort of software as a service business where we license out our commercial lending software to other banks, predominantly in the US. And we've got customers like Capital One, PNC, Fifth Third. And then we use that same technology to lend directly off our own balance sheet via Oak North Bank uh, here in the UK. And the bank launched in 2015, so lent about $5 billion to date. Cool. Great stuff. And joining uh, Valentina, also making a welcome return, we have Mark Mullen, who's the CEO of Atom Bank. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Um, again, also a lot of people listening to this will obviously know who Atom are, but as an incredibly high-level summary, uh, is it possible just to give us an overview? <laughs> yeah, of course it is. So so we are, um, I guess, a neobank, challenger bank, fintech, call us what you want, um, but we lend to residential mortgage customers. Uh, we lend to SMEs in total. I think we've pretty much loaned about four billion pounds since we started in 2016. And we also offer uh, retail deposits, so fixed rate savings and instant access. Cool. Uh, Thank you. And then finally, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Tucker Haas, who's the CEO and co-founder of Quo. Uh, Tucker, thanks you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Can you give the guys who are listening to this, guys and girls, uh, a little bit of an overview of who Quo are um, and a little bit about where you're based and where you are right now in your journey? 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Uh, so Quo is a consumer subscription mobile app that helps you achieve your financial goals. So the primary goal that we offer right now is home ownership, where we create a step-by-step plan that kind of takes you from zero to owning a home in no time. And we provide the tools and automated guidance across credit, debt, savings, loan programs, and more. And you know we're based in Menlo Park, California. Uh, we're a Series A company, so we have you know, tens of thousands of customers today. And we are really uh, just trying to, <laughs> at this point, grow as much as we can. Cool. Uh, thanks very much, and thanks for joining us. Um, let's move into sort of the, the first part of this discussion, which is uh, lending as a product. Um, it's titled on the sheet, is this the only way for banks to make money? But really what I wanted to know is why reaching profitability is now, I guess, so important for fintechs uh, and the role, obviously, that lending plays in that. Mark, I'll come to you first. Um, I suppose in a world where um, many are sort of craving new business models, alternative revenue models for banks, banks are looking to diversify. Why is lending still so important and intrinsic to how banks make money? Wow. At its basic, at its most basic, it's because it's still a hugely valuable product and people still want it. And because they haven't got enough money to buy the things or finance the things they want today, they essentially set up a contract and spread the cash flows over the future. So, you know, people want it. It's, it's a valuable, value adding product. It is as simple as that. What's more, the banking model is as old as most business models in existence. And at the heart of it is leverage. And nobody's come up with a more technically efficient way, albeit unstable, let's face it, but a technically efficient way of, of, of essentially creating money. And maturity transformation of fractional banking sits at the heart of it. And sometimes it's in favor and sometimes it's not. But the truth of the matter is that it's paying for most of the business, most of the industry. And it's been paying for most of the industry for pretty much all the time it's been in existence. So it's frankly good for shareholders, good for customers. That's why we still do it. Yeah, I guess uh, is it. I mean, is it unlikely that it's going? Away? So we've seen over maybe the last ten years, lending has changed quite significantly. Uh, alternative lending providers coming into the market. There's been you know huge P two P, the rise of P two B, the rise of payday loans, and then the subsequent fall of payday loans. Different types of lending to uh, almost look at different types of use cases. Do, do you see lending? ever going away as the dominant form of revenue for banks? Uh, or is it just going to morph again into sort of different different types of models? Listen, the numbers in banking are pretty educational. So if you looked at bank revenue in 2020, in, uh, banks in the UK generated about £45 billion of revenue in 2020. It was a huge number, of which nearly £35 billion came from interest income. Essentially, getting on for 80% of bank revenues in 2020 came from lending. And if you compare that with the amount of fee income that came from things like credit cards and current accounts, we think it's about 5.6 billion. So as far as we're concerned, we're competing in a market that's 35 billion pounds of interest income. And many fintechs are only competing for 5.6 billion. And the, you know, the competitive dynamics in that are, are they're kind of difficult to understand, which is why is everyone engaged in a feeding frenzy for 5.6 billion pounds of revenue. And incidentally, that number is shrinking, right? It's not a growing number. And it's shrinking because the regulator doesn't like banks charging fees and making up stuff, right? So overdraft fee incomes being in decline, arrangement fee incomes in decline. So why are fintechs so frenzied about this dying 
business and ignoring how banks actually make money. And there's a huge amount of talk about disruption that nobody has disrupted the banking model, not meaningfully. The, the, the tier one banks and, and one building society pretty much rule the roost and control the show when it comes to lending in the UK and not just in the UK, but further afield too. Yeah, and t- Tucker, I'll, I'll bring you in there, being, um, I suppose, one of the new providers um, who are looking to, I guess, disrupt that model to, to a degree. Um, you've kind of obviously got, I suppose, specific uh, issues relating to being a startup and being seed funded and the pressures on that. And I wanted to ask you specifically around, I suppose, the drive for profitability with a company as young as yourself and whether or not you're feeling that pressure from VCs or is the VC pressure that you guys have still on growth, still on customer acquisition? Because it, it's interesting in the, to chart a life, I guess, of a, of a new fintech company who are looking to provide financial services and understand when's the optimal time, if you like, to provide lending services. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the most interesting things is that when Quo started off, you know, in our earliest days, we were incredibly lending focused and we were really looking at how to introduce new kinds of models for, you know, for loans. And what we saw kind of in the market around venture capital was that you know, the there was a very cold reaction to that kind of model because it is very low margin at the end of the day and and low growth. It's very high risk. It's hard to scale up a credit model, you know, from zero to a million people, you know, in a year. Whereas you look at some of these other platforms like debit cards, like Mark was talking about, where you know these challenger banks, they're very you know simple to grow, right? It's obviously there is you know complications within them, but they're much more profitable you know on a net basis compared to trying to bring in you know this very risky model. And so we saw that and we felt that personally. Um, today, though, you know our business we have really focused around how can we utilize the things we're really good at within technology and and SaaS and being able to help customers with better user experience and trying to build a model that is at its core more profitable and higher margin rather than going after something that is like interchange, right? Something that is very difficult to capture a large percentage of. Um, as Mark said, it is a much smaller component than lending. And so we think that if you tap into lending from the beginning, you know, that's really going to form a much stronger business over the long term, even though it is more difficult. Yeah, I'll come back to sort of technology in a bit because I wanted to spend a, a little bit of time on that. But just as a quick question, is is the best way, I guess, to become profitable in that instant is by reducing your costs, knowing that the actual, I suppose, you know, the, the loaners, you know, lending as a product has only got sort of a um, certain parameters, I guess, uh, on the margin that you can make. Right. And loans are very simple <laughs> at their core, right? It's uh, how much are you charging? How much are you losing? And then how much is it costing you to service the loan? And so, you know, I think that's part of the, uh, the difficulty for a lot of fintech players is that when you have a simple equation, it's harder to optimize, right? It's, you know, how am I going to reduce risk either? And it, that's a very difficult thing to do unless you change the population you're lending to. How am I going to service uh, cheaper, which is, of course, why lots of these players have very poor customer service, because that's one of the largest costs. Uh, or how am I you know, going to be able uh, to you know, increase the amount that I'm charging, um, which you see with a lot of different models as well, like uh, cash advance, payroll advance loans, which are very expensive. Um, and there's just not a lot of options out there. Yeah. 
Um, Val, I wanted to come to you. Oak North, I mean, this is well known uh, in fintech circles, but Oak North was profitable within six months of conception. It's, uh, again, sort of, uh, I guess, put, put up there as the startup that, you know, demonstrated profitability early and it's sort of that kind of shining light in the uh, in the ecosystem that, that, that's that been built in, the, in London, especially the UK. Question to you, when you started it, I guess, were, were the founders uh, specifically focused on profitability or actually was it just sort of a byproduct of the services that you provided? Um, so I think I think it's both. Um, I mean, Rishi and Joel, our founders, are traditionalists, so they, they do feel that a business should make money and they certainly didn't ever want uh, the business to be sort of reliant on VC funding to, to fuel the runway. Um, because obviously there can be a number of things that can happen, as we've seen over the last 15 months, that can impact that. Um, but it's also that, you know, the business model is is very, very simple, right? We we raise de- deposits to help fund our lending. Um, and that is lending that is specifically to businesses. So it's a very simple business model. We don't uh, try and cross-sell, you know, other products, current accounts, business credit cards, etc. Um, it's just very, very focused on on that, uh, you know, that one area, commercial lending loans of half million up to about 50 million. So um, that focus has also helped us to reach profitability um, much faster. I think kind of to one of the points that you you made, Tucker, around um, sort of the, the pricing, you know, Oak North Bank hasn't competed by being the cheapest lender in the market by, by any stretch. I mean, we're not the most expensive, but, um, you know, we're sort of, I guess, in between where the traditional high street banks and a debt fund maybe we sort of sit in between. Um, but, you know, what we found is that uh, entrepreneurs and business owners are willing to sort of pay a premium to avoid the opportunity cost of having to wait several months to get an answer or to have to have an off the shelf product. Computer says no decisions, um, you know, which is the experience that they have with those traditional high street lenders. So um, that's also been part of it. You know, we haven't um, it hasn't been a race to the bottom. Um, which you've seen, obviously, with a lot of other other banks. And is that is that still uh, even now? I say even now. Uh, I know we've just been through the pandemic and all the consequences on lending that that's and, and the process that was put in place, obviously, to distribute those loans. But but do you think it, now, with the amount of pr- uh, providers on the market uh, and digital only providers on the market, do you still see speed as an advantage because you're still going up against the traditional lenders, or actually now? And this is a question, I guess, for for, for all three of you. Or do you see actually speed is almost like a table state now, and you need to offer something in addition? to that in order to secure the best loans available? So I would say, actually, if you look at investment in technology, uh, in commercial lending, uh, it's been a lot more focused on the smaller end of the market. I mean, even actually in, gen- in lending generally, it's been on sort of the more consumer retail lending or, or very small business lending. So it's very quick, as you say, in the sort of sub half a million mark, um, you know, with, with platforms, um, you know, like Funding Circle and iWalker and so on, where you can get an answer within minutes or, or a few hours. Um, but in this sort of area that we focus on, that sort of half a million up to about 50 million. And it wasn't actually up to 50 million when we started. It was it was quite a bit smaller than that. We've just found that that, that gap has grown over the years. Um, and we call that gap sort of the, the missing middle. And we found there that speed is definitely something that is you know, absolutely a priority for the business owners, but it's something that the larger banks struggle with. So typically, you know, even if, if it's a no, you're still talking several months. Um, but it's other things too, you know, it's, it's the ability of the bank to understand the business at the granular level, right? If you take the last 15 months with the pandemic, most banks tend to lump all businesses into one of, say, a dozen sectors, right? 
So hospitality and leisure, for example, which means that you're sort of considering, okay, restaurants, hotels, all being lumped under the same same umbrella or, or put into the same bucket. And actually the experience of a, you know, Michelin star restaurant in Mayfair over the last 15 months will have been very different to that of a takeaway pizza place, right? The experience of a conference hotel next to the Excel Center or an airport hotel in Heathrow will have been very different to, you know, uh, a hotel that, that caters to staycationers or people going on cycling holidays or a resort hotel, you know, next to a seaside location in the UK. So it's really important as well that uh, banks are able to understand that granularity of the business. And that's, again, something that um, at least at this ticket size, uh, larger banks just aren't willing to spend the time to do that. That's interesting. Well, Mark, have you got a, a view on that? Well, whether speed still matters. Uh, yes, well, pre- predominantly. Yeah. Well, I think it, it absolutely matters. But speed is um, it's a product of efficiency more generally. So in order to be able to do things more quickly, you have to have uh, slicker processes, you have to have focus, and you have to have invested in, in, in underlying technology to be able to, if you like, drive velocity. And that's good for your business as, as much as it's good for your customer. And it's not just because they want to get an answer more quickly, because actually a, a swift no is better than a protracted yes at times, because they simply haven't got time to waste. Um, but it's also good for uh, price. You know, the, the faster you can, if you like, crank your engine, the banking machine that we describe it as, uh, the better the dividend for all of the stakeholders. Um, I wouldn't underestimate, it's not the only factor, right? So you've also got to focus on, as far as I'm concerned, trying to charge your customer as little as possible and trying to pay your customer as much as possible. And, and that's kind of an unusual objective for a bank, because classically banks are trying to increase the spread between, if you like, borrowers and savers. I actually think the whole purpose of of our model is to try and narrow it. And the way you do that is by focusing on your own efficiency and your own costs. And and fundamentally, and actually Val's already talked about it, you know, they don't do transactional banking. They don't do cross-sell, which is the orthodox, well, gee, that's how the banking model works. I'll tell you what, that banking model is 54% less efficient than a banking model that concentrates on lending, right? And the reality of it is in the UK, people are still not paying for checking accounts. It's still free if in credit. And and, and that means that the borrowers are paying for it. So, So it stands to reason if you strip out those costs and focus on the borrowers and the savers, you should have a more efficient business model. Uh, Val, you had a, a point on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point that Mark's raised around the efficiency ratios or cost-income ratios is so important, right? The average between the high street banks is, I think, 76% uh, in 2020. Um, Oak North is 27%, right? So you're just talking, you know, many, many layers more efficient. And that is, you know, yes, because we are very focused on uh, just doing commercial lending really, really well, rather than sort of trying to be all things for all people. Um, but it's everything else, right? It's the technology. It's the fact that we're not bricks and mortar led. And so all of those things kind of come into play and uh, and then ultimately mean that because you're more efficient, you can create that better experience for the customer. Yeah, Tucker, I was gonna, I'm just going to turn to you. Um, when we talk about technology, you, you, you guys obviously started quite recently. You've started relatively from scratch. So you've almost had the pick of all the new uh, financial technology uh, providers that are out there, the BAS players, the lending providers. How... Um, I suppose, and I'm kind of interested, what, what were the sort of the um, 
the characteristics that you were looking for, some of the parameters that you were looking for in these organizations when you decided to select those guys as your partners and as your banking stack? Um, because it is interesting to understand when you go through sort of a lending model, what do you build yourself versus what do you just buy off the shelf? Where does the USP lie in terms of where you want to where you want to play and what do you want to be known for going forward? I'm just kind of interested with someone who's sort of, sort of made those decisions across the stack. What were some of the factors that went into that? Absolutely. And it's uh, it's funny because it really comes back to speed. Um, you know, speed for us was the most important factor as we thought that that was our primary advantage as a startup is how quickly can we get to market and iterate on on the products that we're offering. And so that was really the primary, you know, metric that we measured our partners off of. Uh, we ended up partnering with, with Synapsify and Evolve Bank to be able to offer our products in the U.S. And so that was very much based upon you know that access now at the same time as you mentioned there's other there's not just the, who is providing you know the the compliance infrastructure and KYC and and the actual mechanics of it but also you know who is doing underwriting and who is being you know providing the data and for us that was what we wanted to own right we wanted to be able to you know control our own risk processes we wanted to be able to iterate on that as quickly as we could and so we ended up building a lot of that ourselves um, and at the end of the day, it really comes to, you know, as a startup uh, or as a business in general, you know, what is your key differentiator and what is, you know, going to be the thing that's going to drive the most value for your customers? What we saw was that for us specifically, you know, the compliance infrastructure and the speed of uh, that end of things was not as important, but how fast we could iterate on um, on the product, how fast we could change our risk models and change the markets. That was the part that was really, really important to us. So that's ended up how we, you know, cut between the two at least. Cool. And Val, um, just when we talk about USPs, um, the obvious one that I'm going to ask you is, uh, I, I guess the sort of the hybrid model that you guys run at the moment um, when you make your credit decisions. Um, if it's possible, just to talk us a little bit through that, um, and I suppose why you guys have sort of doubled down in terms of you know the resource and the capital that you're putting into that specific part of the business and the benefits that you feel that gives you over competition in in the UK. Yeah, sure. So I guess there's there's three parts to the technology, which is the the Oak North Credit Intelligence Suite, as we call it. Um, so the first is credit analysis. So that helps us to do the well, as it says on the tin, I guess the the analysis that you would do at the back end much more quickly. Um, you know, and that means that the, uh, in terms of what that brings for us as a business, it means our relationship managers have more time to spend with the uh, borrowers um, or the prospective borrowers uh, at the front end. So uh, they can spend more time getting to know the business and then actually use that time to design a bespoke facility that really works for that business because all that time that's being unlocked um, through the credit analysis at the back end, which again, if you compare that to a traditional bank, you'd be spending a huge amount of time um, you know, pulling together the, the credit memo and the data that you need to, to make an informed credit decision. The other part is portfolio insights. So uh, that's been extremely helpful over the last 15 months, especially essentially enables us to create a forward looking view of the portfolio um, on a very granular subsector level. So going back to the example that I talked about earlier with the, you know, the different restaurants, for example, um, the ability to identify where the vulnerabilities are in the portfolio and we actually were able to do that on a sort of one to five point scale. So five being, you know, this business is is very, very vulnerable and needs to be identified very, very you know, needs to be looked at. Um, and uh, and potentially you need to work with that business to, to find a way uh, to get out of whatever challenge there may be. Um, so if you think about how that's played out in Oak North Sloan book, you know, to date, we've had 10 cumulative defaults since inception. 
um, on several hundred loans, right? Um, we've had full repayment on seven of them. Um, and that's the ability of the technology to flag potential issues well in advance. Um, and we haven't had a single loan write-off, right? So the fact that we've been able to catch those issues well in advance has helped us to then work with the borrower and, and hopefully avoid uh, a loss and obviously minimize um, defaults. And then the third piece is uh, portfolio monitoring, which is, again, sort of taking a very forward-looking view of the portfolio, monitoring on an ongoing basis rather than what you tend to find in most banks is sort of an annual review, um, you know, or potentially a biannual review. And what we've heard from a lot of our customers who've been deploying the technology, um, so banks in the US, you know, they sort of said when when COVID hit, they sort of looked at their loan book and went for those loans where they had the largest exposure uh, because they didn't know where the vulnerabilities were. And then it turned out that actually as the pandemic played out, some of those larger loans weren't actually problem areas. And some of the smaller loans that they sort of thought, oh, we don't have very large exposure there, but actually those businesses were ones that were more vulnerable. Mm. Um, and the forward-looking view is so important because, you know, some of these trends from the pandemic are, are permanent, right? If you think about the paper industry, um, the shift to paperless is one that's probably more permanent, um, whereas the increase in demand for cardboard because people are ordering more at home is one that's you know not likely to be maintained at the sort of pandemic peak pandemic levels. So even those shifts and how they can impact the revenues of a business in that sector. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and Mark, I just wanted to ask you one more thing before we move into uh, the next section of the podcast. Um, one thing that I'm kind of interested in is um, it, you sort of sit across a bank that that has got sort of has obviously got multiple products. Um, is heavily into heavily into lending uh, as a revenue driver. Have you seen, I guess, or have you thought about uh, a model where or a future where th there's another potential service or another potential product that could amass as m as much revenue um as lending does at the moment i know you said at the beginning you know that it's sort of it, it there's a massive disparity between fee income uh and and nim net interest margin income but from your perspective is there something uh is there something around the corner that you guys are looking at at the moment where actually you can say in you know five to ten years to your, your shareholders actually this is where you know this is going to be a sizable revenue pool for our bank in you know x amount of time i think we, you know if you're thinking about building in or engineering op optionality i guess is how i describe it so right now most of our revenue in fact all of our revenue materially is coming from people paying interest on loans and and it's a spread business to that extent um and, you know very consistent with, with what your two other speakers are talking about um, that doesn't mean to say that that's the end of the optionality for a bank model like ours. So, you know, we've already completed three pretty significant securitization transactions. We are a flow partner with a number of platforms, sorry, with, with, with one major platform uh, and another one in, in, in flight. Um, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're direct scheme members of both BACs and faster payments in the UK. So, you can either think, and, and of course, it's a licensed deposit taker and a balance sheet. And we're also a mortgage originator and servicer. So it doesn't take a massive amount of imagination to think about, well, where does that business model extend? And it's not necessarily about increasing the number of products that we're delivering to customers, whether they be personal customers or business customers. It's about building out a B2B franchise or building out a servicing or a platform or flow franchise. And you can think about flow on or flow off because the leverage model is a pretty powerful model. And once you've demonstrated an ability to manage the life cycle from origination through servicing and, and onwards, you know, on a full stack basis, if you think about it, 
then there's a whole bunch of different types of business model in the fintech community who can see value pertaining to that model, but don't necessarily want to be a bank because it's mm. an expensive business model to create and run. Nobody should be naive about that. Um, and yet, you know, they can see how it can enhance value for their model. So yes, is the simple answer. Can I can I put a number to it at the moment? No, because most of our focus right now is on residential mortgage lending, SME lending, and getting to break even, and then ultimately getting to a, an IPO. Um, and that's priority number one. Priority number two is, okay, absolutely. How do we extend the range of the model and, and, and take advantage of some of that opportunity? There are a number of things that we have in flight to that exact agenda. Cool. Thanks. And we'll talk about those uh, in a little bit. We're just going to take a quick pause here uh, to hear from the sponsor and we'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single-source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioural intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com. Welcome back. So uh, in this next part, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, around the evolution of lending, um, specifically looking at loans uh, and the lending models themselves as this industry niche uh, expands. I guess, uh, general question to anyone, um, where is the biggest disruption in this space to be found? Because we've seen a lot of different fintechs, Mark, you alluded to it before the break, a lot of different fintechs concentrating on different types of loans and different types of use cases, customer problems. In your opinion, w- where is the biggest disruption, I guess, across, uh, we'll put a time scale on it, you know, the next sort of t- two years or so. We don't want to go too far out in the future. Are you asking about a specific technology or a specific product? Or are you asking more generally about the whole industry? I think more generally about the whole industry. If there's if there's a if there's a product that you've got on your mind uh, that you're particularly fond of, then uh, then that would be great. Well, listen, my 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 answer to that is I, I don't know of many disruption stories that happen at the periphery of an industry. You know, the, the industries that people talk about as having been disrupted are either industries that were created from scratch; they're relatively few and far between or they're industries that are dominated by de facto cartels. And you sort of think about the big capital intensive industries across the planet. Some of them are manufacturing, some of them are banking. It's not unusual for markets to be dominated by a very small number of very, very big banks. And what's interesting about the competitive dynamic in fintechs, in the fintech space, or indeed in the challenger and neo-banking space, is that very few people are actually competing in the heart of the industry. And so they're being disruptive But I don't think they're disrupting because the stability of the big banks is really unchallenged. People are lending around the periphery. They're lending to a different risk appetite, but they haven't changed the shape of the industry. That's what that to me is what is is due to happen. But it's not there yet. Uh, Tucker, you've got thoughts on that? Yes, definitely. So, you know, I think that Mark is right in, you know, in the general sense that I don't seen a lot of massive disruption of the big bank's business. Uh, but 
I do think that, you know, the biggest disruption that I see in the near horizon is really how we're opening up access and lending to other populations. You know, there's been, especially in the United States, a very large population that has, you know, had unequal access to credit um, and been not able to get access to things like mortgages uh, because of how the system currently works. You know, you look at the rates of minorities who enter the credit system, you know, with sometimes as high as 5x uh, derogatory marks as, you know, yeah, as Caucasian people. And so there is a lot of these kind of different programs and products that are coming out that are very much focused on those markets. And that is a big disruption because that is a large set of the market that is now able to get access to credit. You know, we're seeing, of course, you know, products like um, the pedal card, which is you utilizing alternative methods of underwriting uh, to be able to get access to those markets. And of course, it's small now, but looking out over the next couple of years, uh, that's where I see the most opportunity. Rather than trying to go after what the big banks, you know, use today as their primary lending base, is really focusing on these other markets that have not had the that same access. Yeah, and Val, have I been unfair? I guess the, it, it's almost like what's the definition of disruption? I guess across the next, you know, you almost need to define what that means before you can answer the question right. But in in your mind, and I suppose actually um, linking back to what you guys offer right now. Um, what kind of keeps you awake at night as the potential disruptor or what are you mobilizing towards, I guess, that, that that's coming into play that you see over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at most fintech unicorns or neobanks uh, in this space, you know, the scaling strategy is that they're trying to essentially get banking licenses in markets all over the world and, and in effect become global banks, right? And in our view, we just don't think that's the most effective way to actually address this problem quickly, the, the missing middle funding gap, which is why, you know, and I think, you know, Mark made the point, these these larger banks have stood the test of time, right? Some of them have been here for hundreds of years. They've been through many unprecedented events. They've, they lived, you know, through the previous pandemics. Um, and and so uh, the likelihood of, of all of them being completely overtaken, unless you were to have sort of a an iPhone level of disruption, right, where there's essentially a new product that completely eradicates what was there previously, um, then it will always just be being disruptive rather than actually disrupting. Um, and that's why, you know, we've taken the view that in the UK, we'll continue to build a great bank and compete with uh, the larger banks when it comes to commercial lending. But um, our scaling strategy is, is actually to enable those larger banks and to sort of bring them into the 21st century and enable them to deliver the the borrowing experience that uh, that customers now have uh, in terms of their expectations there. So it is a different approach than what most neobanks and, and sort of fintechs are um, are taking, which is to obviously try and become global global banks and compete rather than collaborate with the the incumbents. Yeah, I was I also wanted to ask just off the back of that, I, I guess um, uh, over the last sort of 18 months, two years, there's been this, you know, every every company every company with brand association and brand trust and equity can uh, who can start providing financial services just because of the sort of plethora of offers that you've got at the moment from tech companies does it necessarily mark maybe this is what one for you to start off does it necessarily worry you that you know you could have organizations like for instance nike i mean i'm i'm just spitballing nike here um mainly because i can see their trainers in my room uh, but you've got organizations like nike or office express actually is a good one who, who who offer um you know sort of office supplies and things of that nature D- does it worry you that they can actually uh, just by virtue of 
of you know the technology on offer now take significant market share from i suppose quote unquote traditional lenders principally because in the customer journey some of them will have encountered the client before the lenders have. And I, I just wonder whether that's, you know, as we get more and more, I suppose, as, as, as that technology, you know, takes hold more and more, is that something that, that's on your radar? Or again, it's it, it sort of, is, is it not necessarily going to make a dent? It's, it's not something that worries us greatly because we're actually still really small in a huge banking market in the UK, right? So, when you say, am I worried that more competition will harm the incumbents? <laughs> Hell no, you know, <laughs> bring it on. And on the other hand, what, what, it, what is interesting about it is the sort of death by a thousand cuts dynamic. And we've seen a bit of that, right? So we've seen quite a number of specialist businesses focusing on FX um, and, 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 and building substantial businesses. Why? Because there's really fat margins. And because you get to a low, you get to a point or a threshold in banks where actually it's almost as though you don't know you've lost as much blood until such time as it's too late to do it about it. And so, you know, the big banking models are being attacked at the periphery by hundreds, thousands of fintechs and, and thousands of other brands where customers encounter them. In the end, of course, that, that you know, there is a cumulative impact that that will have on the banking industry. And we saw it, you know, in previous generations where the supermarket lenders, for example, you know, essentially started to undercut on unsecured lending, pet insurance, house insurance, you know, home motor, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, it's not a new phenomenon. It's probably be going, going to become more diverse um, and, and a bigger issue. And then you've got the secondary issue, which is, and everyone's still scratching their noses, wondering whether the, you know, the Uber platforms are going to play. Are they going to, you know, are they going to want a piece of the banking market? Are they going to partner as Apple has with Amex in North America? JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs coming to the UK, you know, seems to be a bigger existential, soon to be, you know, non-existential threat to the to the main major incumbents. So, so there is a recognition here. Whether it's about, you know, I guess minnows on the periphery or whether it's about big new entrants, that the competitive heat is rising. Um, my own view is bring it on. Yeah. Uh, Val? Yeah, I mean, I think another interesting point is around trust because, you know, the, when this discussion about sort of big tech coming to, to eat big banks lunch. It was all about, well, nobody trusts the banks, you know, post financial crisis, and everybody is much more likely to trust, you know, the the provider of the products that they use every day, the, you know, the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, and so on. And it's just really interesting how that dynamic has shifted in the last couple of years, right, with the scandals that we've seen from, you know, TikTok being fined, uh, you know, earlier this year for using children's data, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, you know, uh, the the problems in, in Airbnb's algorithms in terms of discrimination uh, towards people of color uh, and so on and so forth, right? The list goes on and on. Um, whereas actually, you know, the last few years have really given banks the opportunity to rebuild some of the trust that was lost post-financial crisis. And that was partially driven by, you know, obviously increased regulation and uh, holding people more accountable through things like the senior manager certification regime. But also, you know, they really have played a great role in the last 15 months, right? When when governments saw the impact of the pandemic, the pandemic's going to have on businesses, they turned to the big banks to help get that capital into the hands of businesses, whether it was through 
in the US, the Paycheck Protection Program or the Main Street Lending Program here, it was, you know, C-bills and bounce back loan scheme. Um, and that's really given banks the opportunity to be the hero um, and to really rebuild trust um, at a time when trust in the big tech companies is actually, you know, at an all time low. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, if you look at actually some of the uh, the buy now, pay later providers um, that have entered into uh, the UK market and into public consciousness, you always end up talking about the providers of the credit rather than the platforms or the company that they've partnered with, which I think is really interesting because it shows that people's consciousness, especially when it comes to lending and loans, is is heightened. And I, again, T- Tucker, might be this might be one for you. Um, because we're talking essentially about B2C credit. But from your perspective, do, do you see that? I, I guess, is there um, more sensitivities, or there, there, there tends to be more sensitivities around people's attitudes to obviously lending rather than any other type of financial product, especially when it when it's around, you know, uh, vulnerable lending or lending to people who otherwise, you know, sometimes struggle to get credit? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the sensitivities are, are very high. Um, and, you know, honestly, the biggest place that you've seen this is not in, in buy now, pay later, but in payroll and cash advances in the U.S. Um, you know, payroll and cash advances are very much focused on lower income, uh, you know, people. And so the, the impact is, is very high. And it's really the primary way that a lot of the neobanks in the U.S. have been, um, acquiring customers, you know, for the last year or two. And so, that product has some enormous implications, you know, both, both legally and, and morally. And so we're seeing, you know, the CFPB now going in to investigate, uh, different companies like Dave.com, uh, who's, you know, about to go public and had to disclose that. And the, really it's become a, a very hot button issue. Buy now, pay later has definitely, you know, entered the public conscious, as you said. And I think that the brand partnerships actually help build a lot of trust. You know, it doesn't feel like, yes, I'm getting a loan through a firm, but, I'm also getting it through Peloton. Uh, and that affinity, I think, is really, really important, especially because, you know, store credit cards have been in such a, a large thing, in, especially in the U.S., for a very long time um, and you know, usually offered through banks like Synchrony Bank. It's really not wholly different than then look at Buy Now, Pay Later, offered through a, fir- a firm in partnership with, you know, somebody like Peloton. So I think that the sensitivities that I've seen are much more on kind of these microloans focused on minority uh, communities, lower income communities. That's where we've seen a lot of issues spring up. Um, I didn't want to spend too long on sort of de- DeFi lending or decentralized finance or anything like that. Um, but I did want to just touch on it only just because some of the volumes that are going through uh, some of the chains at the moment are, are quite enormous. And I suppose at the at the heart of it, at the heart of sort of decentralized finance is, is lending. Um, I guess from your perspective, do you guys are you guys getting asked about it or about the um, to, to comment on it? And I suppose just just because of the obviously the, the positions that you guys are at the moment, your proximity to lending as a product, and you know, in terms of uh, a n another way, if you like to to raise funds and finance, is is that a model that you can see scaling better than maybe some of the other use cases that have have tried to you know been enacted on on chains before? You know, I don't think so personally. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, it really goes back to, you know, we've seen so many different funding models, you know, throughout the years, but the most recent kind of larger one was peer to peer lending, right? And, you know, if you go back 10 years, that was the hot topic, uh, of raising new funds in a, in a different way. And fundamentally, 
you know, banks have a very, very low cost of capital, as I'm sure Mark and Val can attest to with their deposits, right? That is a very cheap source of capital to make these loans with, and you have much larger uh, leverage over these spreads. Comparing that to something like peer-to-peer lending or DeFi, you know, your cost of capital ends up being a lot higher. And that just makes it difficult to compete with those banks. You end up having to compete on some other axis, like whether it's customer service or, or access or whatever it is. Uh, and that's a really hard game to play. Um, so fundamentally, I think that while these this does make it easier to raise capital uh, in the same way that I think peer-to-peer lending also enabled certain platforms to be able to raise capital, it's telling that those same platforms that you know, came up with peer-to-peer lending are now becoming banks, are now securitizing loans, are now you know really moving away from peer-to-peer lending. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Has anyone else got a specific take on that? Or no, I think Tucker's answered it pretty well. Cool. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Um, I did want to ask um, one thing is around the uh, I guess the enterprise technology companies and what they're offering. I guess in the lending space uh, and um, and how much I suppose legacy banks. And banks with sort of old, relatively outdated infrastructure can use some of this stuff to, uh, and some of these technologies to improve what they have and how quickly they're able to do it. And uh, the, all three of you guys, you all represent uh, technology uh, companies, sorry, with technology stacks that are relatively new and modern. And I guess if you look at organisations like iWalker, who have sort of an enterprise uh, product. Uh, Blend in the states have one as well, um, which underpin quite a lot of the regional banks that that provide their credit. Synapse as well, obviously. Tucker, you've got um, first-hand experience of those guys. Um, how much? How quickly will it take? I suppose a legacy player. And Val, I might ask you this one. Uh, first off, to be able to service the area that you think is underserved at the moment by the legacy banks, just by um, connecting to. New new financial providers, new lending products, um, potentially quicker than they ever have been able to beforehand. Yeah, so I would say um, you know the pandemic was helpful in that regard because what I think it did was that it forced banks to cut some of the red tape that perhaps historically has held back innovation and digitization projects internally. Um, you know, I'm not saying that they sort of cut corners from a compliance perspective, but I think it meant that look, well, we're in a situation now. This is an emergency, so. How can we escalate this up the food chain and essentially get, uh, you know, this this partnership or whatever it might be, um, you know, uh, signed off as quickly as possible? Um, and we had experiences with that. So one great example is with Customers Bank, um, you know, a great, great bank in the U.S., about 18 billion of assets um, and very fintech forward. They've partnered with a number of fintechs. Uh, they partnered with us on the Paycheck Protection Program um, from the day that it was announced by the US government within three days, uh, we were up and running with the product. Um, Customers Bank was able to service over 100,000 loans and ended up being the sixth most active PPP lender in the US. So literally with, you know, JP Morgan's, uh, you know, and the like, some of the, the largest banks, um, and they were the sixth. And they, as I said, they have assets of 18 billion. So I think... Um, when you are, when you have that willingness to be a first mover, uh, because they were the first ones to use that that particular product for PPP, and when you, you know, when you have the ability to move quickly internally, um, then then it can yield really strong results. But we've also seen that, as I said, I mean, other other banks using the product, Capital One, Fifth Third, PNC, um, you know, these are huge, huge banks in the US that have deployed our product, and you know, with PNC, it was nine days, I think, um, you know, so uh, they can move very, very quickly, but you need to be sort of top of the 
the entry, right? You need to be the number one priority uh, because you're competing with every other project um, that might have been going on for several months, if not years. Yeah, and I guess that's it. Is is therefore, I mean, and again, that goes back to the point we made beforehand on speed. You know, almost if it's becoming a table stake. So now actually the focus is on service and is on identifying or identification of loans, better loans, I suppose, than than your competitors. Um, I guess, Mark, from your perspective, um, uh, we I know a little bit about the core that you guys run, but is there a, is there a specific... Um, I suppose, focus that you've got from a technology perspective over the next sort of, again, you know, 18 months, two years, on, on where you want to double down within your tech stack to improve lending? And, and if there is, what specific angle does that hold? I can answer the question really with, with a, a more general focus on the tech stack itself. And so it's interesting listening to Val because I think it's absolutely true that, that that sort of enterprise solutions providers and the fintechs have allowed banks, big banks, small banks, all banks, frankly, to accelerate and uh, either increase digitalization or bring you product services and processes to market more quickly. And so that's compensated for an historic, I guess, lack of pace when it comes to innovation. At the same time, it's it's possibly contributed to an existing weakness because what it is is it's adding more. Uh, the big banks are, are are you know they struggle, understandably, incidentally, to manage obsolescence and to manage the if you like decommissioning of systems. And we know why we've just decommissioned a system, so you know we're a very young bank and it was still a, a pretty hairy, scary thing to do, but but you know done successfully. So actually, our strategic priority for technology is to consolidate our activities around the TM core, which is Thought Machine, they're our partner um, uh, that we use for our core banking platform. Uh, and that's that requires an immense amount of discipline and focus because we're trying to get, I guess, to the magic solution, which is uh, a single banking core supporting all of the bank services, um, um, digital or sorry, cloud native and digitally enabled from top to bottom and um, more importantly, calibrated from top to bottom of the stack. And that's an easy thing to say. That is a very, very difficult thing for any bank to do, new, young, old, big, small. The the technological challenge of the big banks is one of cost and risk. And that of course translates into pace. And let's be really honest, that's not being solved yet. There There are a number of very, very big programs in flight in some of the biggest banks of the UK of which we're aware, they haven't landed and, and, and they're not necessarily addressing the whole enterprise challenge. They're addressing a part of it. Um, managing obsolescence and decommissioning remain enormous cost and complexity and risk challenges for the big banks. And we're kind of determined not to allow that to become us. Yeah, it's one of those problems. If you, the, the longer that you leave it, literally, the, the, the worst it gets. Um, I, that that actually wraps up the discussion for today. I could literally carry on for probably for, for another hour with a whole list of other questions and and, and um, hearing from you guys. It's been uh, it's been an amazing discussion. Thanks so much. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, where can I'm just going to go around the uh, go around the group and just ask you guys uh, where people can find you? Um, what's the best outlet for you guys? And if you use Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever whatever medium you do, uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Oh, the only place you can find me is at atombank.co.uk. That sounds good. Um, Val, how about yourself? Yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Val Christensen or on LinkedIn. And if you want to find out more about Oak North Bank, it's oaknorth.co.uk. And about our enterprise uh, software as a service solution, it's oaknorth.com. Cool. Thank you. And Tucker, how about yourself? 
Yes, you can also find me on Twitter at Tucker Haas, and you can find out more about Quo at Quo.com, Q-U-O. Cool. And you can find me at Adam D8 on Twitter and at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make uh, the show better and helps to others find the show. As always, if you want to join the discussion, uh, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Thank you to all you guys as well. That was great. Uh, And goodbye for this week. (laughs) 